Can you hear me? My name's Ros Ballister, and I'm chair of the English Faculty Board. It's my privilege to invite Alice Oswald to deliver her inaugural lecture as Oxford Professor of Poetry. Professor Oswald is the 46th Professor of Poetry and the first woman to hold the post in its 300-year history. I'm not, I'm not going to delay you with a long introduction because you're here to hear Alice talk. Um, we're looking forward with keen interest to hear this first lecture. Um, and Alice will be delivering uh, a lecture once a term for the next four years. Um, can I just um, mention that at the end of this lecture, please do stay and join us for a drink downstairs in room six. Can I remind you to turn your phones to silent um, and ask you not to film and uh, photograph so that you can give your full attention um, to this lecture, The Art of Erosion. Welcome, Alice. Thank you, and can you hear me? Please do let me know if you stop being able to hear me. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, and I hope to use this slot mostly to adjust the balance between the livingness and the lastingness of poetry. Both of those qualities are important, but it's my strong belief that the invention of writing has given a little bit too much power to the lastingness of poetry. We tend to assume that the good poems are the ones that last. But of course, poems also need to live. And one of the requirements of living is dying, i.e. vanishing. For that reason, I shan't follow the convention of projecting written poems onto the whiteboard. Uh, I'd like you to trust your ears and your memories and your imaginations, and to trust, in fact, that a poem isn't always what happens in the words, but is the trace that the words leave inside you as it vanishes. It is very hypocritical of me to make that demand of you and then proceed to read my lecture from the page. Uh, but bear with me, I am in the early stages of an evolutionary process, and I hope over the next four years to evolve into a performing lecturer. Uh, I haven't got there yet, so today I am going to be a lecturer from the page, and please forgive me for that. <clears throat> the Art of Erosion. I was once driven in a taxi by a man who had no room for a piano in his house and had moved it under an apple tree. He told me he liked to hear the rain falling on the keys or sometimes fruit and often the wind would arrive at night and bang branches on the broken lid. That was 10 years ago. I imagine it is worn down now to a skeleton of wires. I imagine on windless nights, the moon moves over the wires, playing silence. There are wonderful tunes composed for piano, but if, like me, you are interested in the edge where the mind gives up and matter begins to describe itself, then these weather tunes, these erosions unpredictably composed by time itself, are worth celebrating. 
Perhaps, as Bergson said, there is a mathematical order inherent in matter. And we have only to stop speaking. We have only to stop composing and performing and singing and thinking to hear it. Beckett, inspired by Beethoven's music, which he described as a tonal surface eaten into by large black pauses, tried to make something similar to a weathered piano. He used to sit whole days in his cottage with no paper before him and no intent to write, taking pleasure in following the course of the sun across the sky. The experience of my reader, he said, shall be between the phrases, in the silence communicated by the intervals and not the terms of the statement. It's as if he was working to wear his mind away, to build for himself not a voice, but an ear with which to hear something in a world beyond him. And once or twice, he heard it. It seems as if an invisible accordion were playing immaterially, he said. And then, in a rehearsal of Waiting for Godot, he asked his actors to repeat their lines, but this time to speak them with moonlight in their voices. Among those who write poetry, there are some who believe that poems have to be built up thought by thought, and there are others who believe that poems, like Beckett's Moonlight, are implicit in the air and need only be uncovered. I'm going to speak today about this second kind of poet. I call those poets poets of erosion because their task is not so much to fortify or decorate the language as to wear some holes in it. Process of time worketh such wonder that water, which is of kind so soft, doth pierce the marble stone asunder by little drops falling from aloft. Process of time worketh such wonder that water, which is of kind so soft, doth pierce the marble stone asunder by little drops falling from aloft. Those four lines by Wyatt fall on the listener with a lovely weakness. The vowels get shorter, the beats get softer, the image breaks up into little drops. Process of time worketh such wonder that water which is of kind so soft doth pierce the marble stone asunder by little drops falling from aloft. If Wyatt had stopped there, defeated by time or pierced by water, he would have left us the perfect example of what I call the art of erosion, in which speech gives itself so listeningly to its subject that it is dented or destroyed by it. <laughs> Wyatt's subject, unlike Beckett's, is not really time but love, and for that reason he turns his initial act of erosion into an act of reflection, driving the thought through five more verses, and yet an heart that seems so tender 
receiveth no drop of the stilling tears that always still cause me to render the vain plaint that sounds not in her ears, and so on and so on. To draw attention to time passing, to make a little structure like a moon dial or a water clock, by means of which time is visible but not arrested, is often a matter not of great artistry, but of giving up, of quietening down, of moving oneself out of the way so that light or water or wind or some other agent of erosion can fall on the poem without obstruction. In the living room of the houses of the Scanian peasants, I'm quoting here from a book by Nielsen and Filden called Primitive Time Reckoning, a study in the origins and first development of the art of counting among the primitive and early culture peoples. In the living room of the houses of the Scanian peasants, which were always built according to the sun, i.e. facing east and west, there was in the southern windowsill, beside the middle shaft of the frame, a line which was called the noon line. When the shadow of the shaft fell parallel with this line, it was noon. I'm always searching for such a sun-marked room, and I find it once or twice in the poems of Robert Herrick. So good luck came, and on my roof did light like noiseless snow, or as the dew of night. Not all at once, but gently, as the trees are by the sunbeams tickled by degrees. So good luck came, and on my roof did light, like noiseless snow, or as the dew of night. Not all at once, but gently, as the trees are by the sunbeams tickled by degrees. Now that is what Wyatt might more accurately call a process of time working one of its wonders. The voice begins in darkness with only a dream sense of something different. The word light in the first line gives off a glimmer of double meaning over the course of four lines moving through the weird interior shine of night snow and its imagined transition into dew, the pun rotates and shows its other side. It is suddenly dawn. The voice ends abruptly with real light still moving over the trees towards its noon line. So good luck came. And on my roof did light like noiseless snow or as the dew of night, not all at once, but gently as the trees are by the sunbeams tickled by degrees. While I was writing those words, I noticed a gray triangle of window shadow shift across my paper, and I began to plot the movement with dots, and I passed the diagram to an engineer who was sitting nearby, and he said, yes, the whole table, with all my books and pens, was sliding round at 0.01 centimetres to the minus one per second, and the sun was visibly saying so. 
If I had been using photographic paper, which responds to light by the erosion of its dyes, then I might today be standing here reading a direct transcription of sunlight. These cyanotypes of seaweed are from the History of Science Museum, about 100 yards from here. And they're actually much more beautiful if you go and look at them in the research room of the Science Museum. Nobody should photograph them because they are, um, that's not allowed. But the real things are A5 size in a little blue exercise book. And the background is deep Prussian blue. And they're incredibly finely detailed. Here they look a little bit blurred. They were made in the 19th century by Anna Atkins, who placed specimens onto light-sensitive paper to create a series of silhouettes. The process is an erosive one. Sunlight eats the iron salts and leaves behind a blueprint, just as a coat put down on the grass will leave its image there. Robert Hunt, another early photographer, thought the process so easy, it was almost a sign of weakness to use it. They are so exceedingly simple. The results, he said, are so certain, the delineation so perfect, and the general character so interesting, that they recommend themselves particularly to ladies. <laughs> and to those travelers who, although not able to bestow much attention or time on the subject, desire to obtain accurate representations of the botany of a district. We have seen specimens of the British algae executed by a lady, this is this lady, by the cyanotype process that are remarkable for the extreme fidelity with which even the most attenuated tendrils of the marine plants are copied. On behalf of the ladies he disparages and the travelers, I do not think there is anything harder for an artist to achieve or at least to wish to achieve than simplicity, speed of execution, and fidelity to detail. A number of contemporary artists have come back to photograms, which is what these are, uh, in pursuit of these or similar aims. Susan Durgis, for example, leaves photographic paper in rivers on moonlit nights to make a visual version of speaking with moonlight in your voice. Gary Fabian Miller, shines electric light through flasks of colored liquid to make pictures of the pictures in his mind. I think of Herrick as a pioneer photographer, working like Beckett to get a light print in his voice. When I read his poem, a shutter opens and then another and another and the dawn in four slides moves physically over me. By contrast, when I read Wordsworth's Intimations of Immortality, which is a constructed, not an eroded poem, I stand a little lesser and lower down and behind the poet, and his prevision falls like a shadow between me and the sun. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore. 
Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen, I now can see no more. The rainbow comes and goes, and lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. But yet I know, where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. T.S. Eliot called Herrick a minor poet. Careful to articulate what he meant by that, not that Herrick was a lesser poet, but that he didn't have the singleness of purpose of the major poets, Herbert, Dunn, Milton, and I might add Wordsworth. And strictly speaking, he is right about Herrick. The poems are minor, they might even be slight, but what interests me is that they are sometimes quiet enough to have sunlight in their voices. And I can't help asking, is that because he is a minor poet? Is it because the trajectory of his life, considered as a performance piece, is one of the best examples of the art of erosion? Herrick was born in London in 1591, and he wrote what critics have called his major poems in the company of other urban poets, like Ben Jonson and Thomas Carew. Although it's hard to date his work, according to John Creever's chronology, poems like Corinna's Going a Maying and to his friend Wick's complex pieces with some singleness of purpose all date from those early London years. At the age of 39, Herrick was made vicar of Dean Pryor on the edge of Dartmoor. And something of that place began to seep into him and damage his concentration. His poems dwindled to eight lines, four lines, three lines, two. He took to writing epitaphs, many of them addressed to himself, and he noticed and regretted his decline and blamed it on his whereabouts. Call me no more as heretofore the music of a feast, since now, alas, the mirth that was in me is dead or ceased. Before I went to banishment into the loathed West, I could rehearse a lyric verse and speak it with the best. But time, I me, has laid, I see, my organ fast asleep and turned my voice into the noise of those that sit and weep. But time, I me, has laid, I see, my organ fast asleep and turned my voice into the noise of those that sit and weep. Now that is a very good chronometer. Time has turned his voice into the noise of those that sit and weep. A sniffing, hissing, sighing, dripping, breath-broken noise, similar to the sound of Wyatt's water, which is of kind so soft. I can hear it again in that two-line poem, she by the river sat, and sitting there, she weeping made it deeper by a tear. She by the river sat, and sitting there, she weeping made it deeper by a tear. What exactly is the sound 
of a tear entering water. If you can imagine it, then you are listening to the true note of Herrick, a tiny, plopping unsound, as quiet as the quarter rhyme between weeping and deeper. It is the same sound as Beckett's immaterial accordion. It is the merging, melting sound of one transparency sliding into another like two ghosts meeting in the underworld, or like this, and as a vapor or a drop of rain once lost can ne'er be found again. That is a strange, self-erasing thought. Imagine a man shining a searchlight on the sea looking for a raindrop that has disappeared. Or this. The mellow touch of music most doth wound the soul when it doth rather sigh than sound. The mellow touch of music most doth wound the soul when it doth rather sigh than sound. These microsonic poems are inadvertent self-portraits. It's Herrick himself who is vanishing. And in the brokenness and silence of his later work, I can hear the rainy interference of Dartmoor. In case you don't know Dartmoor, it is what they call a granite upland between North and South Devon, and you enter it over a threshold of cattle grids. As soon as you hear the clunk of cattle grid under your wheels, you open the car windows and you smell erosions. Please pause for five minutes and imagine the weather carving the great granite lump of Dartmoor while I play you Cattle Grids, a section from a symphony by John Drever, who is in the audience, based on his recordings of Dartmoor's Cattle Grids. I don't think there were cattle grids in Herrick's day. Instead, there was the clattering of Dean Bourne, whose waters rise on Dartmoor. 
To me, swimming in it in the 21st century, it is a well-mannered, black-stoned stream with an almost human voice. But to Herrick, it was a symbol of all the blurrings and transgressions for which he hated Devon. Rocky thou art, and rocky we discover thy men, and rocky are thy ways all over, he said. Herrick was frightened of losing his human coherence. And you can understand his fear if you look at contemporary accounts of Devon. In the 17th century, it took eight days to ride from London to Exeter, and beyond Exeter, the roads were often no more than grassy tracks, liable to flooding. Tristram Risdon, in his choreographic account of Devon, completed a couple of years after Herrick's arrival, described the inhabitants as very laborious, thorough, and unpleasant to strangers traveling those ways, which are cumbersome and uneven, among rocks and stones, painful for man and horse, as they can best witness who may have trial thereof. Imagine Herrick transplanted from Cheapside into that boggy, haunted county. If he had been a major poet, he might have kept his eyes on God and suffered no change of style. But Herrick's great strength is his weakness. He let the place filter into him. Like a piano under an apple tree, the structure of his poems began to break, eaten away by the weather, and here and there, the plink of a dead note interfered with his thinking. Lost to the world, lost to myself, alone, here now I rest under this marble stone, in depth of silence, heard and seen of none. Lost to the world, lost to myself, alone, here now I rest under this marble stone, in depth of silence, heard and seen of none. In 1647, during the Civil War, the parishioners of North Devon delivered a petition to the government complaining that the whole county had suffered more than any other the effects of fire or plague in free quarter plunder payments and loss of stock and trade by sea and land. That same year, Herrick was expelled from Dean Pryor for his royalist sympathies. He professed to be delighted. Dean Bourne, farewell, he said. I never wish to see Dean or thy warty incivility. But a dozen years later, after the restoration, he pleaded to be sent back. Devon had softened him. His attitude had shifted. Or to use his own invented word, it had trans-shifted. I sing of times trans-shifting, he says in his opening poem. And the word itself trans-shifts as he speaks it, starting in Latin and then melting into Old English, a hybrid word for a mutable poet. I'm very taken with this word trans-shifting. To shift is to move predictably. To trans-shift is to be buffeted beyond your knowledge. To shift and then be shifted by that shift. To become transhuman, transmorphic, the way dew trans-shifts into mist, or the way a piano trans-shifts from a civilized instrument into a meteorological one. 
to sing of trans-shiftings demands great feats of erosion. You need to see through matter to the durations that are wearing it away. Lovers, how they come and part. A Gyges ring they bear about them still, to be and not seen when and where they will. They tread on clouds, and though they sometimes fall, they fall like dew, but make no noise at all. So silently they one to the other come, as colours steal into the pear or plum, and air like leave no pression to be seen, where'er they met or parting place has been. A Gyges ring they bear about them still, to be and not seen when and where they will. They tread on clouds, and though they sometimes fall, they fall like dew, but make no noise at all. So silently they one to the other come, as colours steal into the pear or plum, and air-like leave no pression to be seen, where'er they met or parting place has been. There you have it, another weathered poem, a poem about unknowable, inaudible transitions. Is it a love poem, or is it really a gardening poem? a poem about the erotic movement of colour over fruit? Is it a cavalier poem, or is it really a cyanotype or rayonist poem, looking not at the fruit, but at the rays of light moving towards it? So silently they one to the other come, as colours steal into the pear or plum, and air-like leave no pression to be seen. I can imagine Herrick in his Dean Pryor garden getting up early to inspect his fruit trees. I have done the same myself. Last summer, I recorded the movement of colour over a Victoria plum throughout the course of a week. Day one, the smallest of 45 green plums has just a rash of pink around the stalk. Day two, the rash is still there, five millimetres wide and circular, the green flesh is going yellow. Day three, all the plums on that branch have a whitish look. The small plum is suffering a kind of sunrise, and spots of crimson and yellow are bursting up through its surface. The ripening seems to be happening cell by cell. Day four, yellow haze all round the branch. The pink has let fall a plume of mauve down one side. Day five, it looks like a spreading fire. The eye can't quite believe it, keeps jumping back to the thought of green, but all kinds of colours now seem to be gathering under the skin. Day six, sadly, on day six, while turning the fruit to inspect its underneath, I snapped the twig. A good example of the way our observations interfere with our experiments. But anyway, there was something forlorn about the whole endeavour, 
It was like the story of Kitty Jay, who is buried on Dartmoor. Every morning there are fresh flowers on her grave, but nobody has ever seen them delivered. Every morning out of nowhere and leaving no trace in the air, more purple had arrived on my plum tree, and the process of recording this made me aware all week of radiations rather than solidities. And yet the notes I made in blue biro on the wall calendar, each day more elaborate, could not begin to describe what was happening. For all my close inspection, I never once saw the actual movement of the colour. There remained a mystery inside each shade shift so that I failed morning after morning to catch the actual livingness of that plum performance. What was required was not more detail, but less. Herrick's eight lines, of which only two describe the fruit, somehow allow the process its mystery. As colours steal into the pear or plum, and air-like leave no pression to be seen. There is another fruit watcher in a hotter orchard at an even earlier hour. Homer, in book 24 of the Odyssey, notices not the color of his grapes, but their gradually increasing weight. You gave me and named for me 50 vine rows, all kinds of grapes growing ripe in succession whenever the hours of God weigh down on them from the air. You gave me and named for me 50 vine rows, all kinds of grapes growing ripe in succession whenever the hours of God weigh down on them from the air. It's a wonderful scene when Odysseus has come home and is trying to prove to his father that he is who he is. And he's doing it by means of talking about the, the vine rows. If Herrick has the gift of weakness, like a net curtain letting the light shine through his language, then Homer has the greater gift of absence. He is simply not there, and nothing is known about him, not even whether he was one poet or several. And just as Herrick's unsteadiness tuned his voice to transshiftings, so Homer's hiddenness, which is really just his embeddedness in other voices, gives him access to things unseen and puts no mediating obstacle between the unseen and the audience. All kinds of grapes growing ripe in succession whenever the hours of God weigh down on them from the air. Grape flowers, as they fill up with water, turn upside down and sink closer and closer to the earth. Homer invites us to read that movement as a downward pressure from the air, and the verb he uses is the same he uses elsewhere of both snow and rain. As a winter-swollen river smashes down the walkways with its current, and the flowering vineyards can't hold it back with their fences whenever the rainstorm of God weighs down on that river. Like on a winter's day, the snowflakes fall thickly, and everything gets covered from above whenever the snowstorm of God weighs down on the world. 
All three images compressed together inside the memory of the performer rub off on each other so that the falling hours are half snow, half rain, and the air itself is made visible. The lines last no more than two moments. Designed to be heard out loud, not read from the page, their language is winged, passing, gone. And yet in that flash glimpse, they see further than Herrick. They see the actual pression in the air, which Herrick missed. And they see time itself, not in its mechanical, but in its natural seasonal form. The hours or seasons are variable characters based on the variable divisions of daylight. They are the original transshifters. In May 2020, the Horniman Museum in London is employing a hermit who will live for a month in the clock tower. His task is to stop time. And even now, he is preparing all kinds of erosions, inscriptions, evaporations, musical interludes, and excavations, and straightforward acts of demolition to fulfill that commission. Luckily for him, no one is going to find out whether or not he is successful. It will be like the Yugoslavian wedding procession, which froze for a hundred years on the way to church, then thawed out and carried on regardless. I have spoken to this hermit, and he told me that his vision of time is inspired by the Buddhist concept of an eon. The word for it is kalpa, and this is what a kalpa is. The Buddha described a mountain even bigger than Mount Everest. Once every hundred years, someone wipes the mountain with a small piece of silk. The mountain will be worn away before the kalpa ends. I don't know how you would stop that kind of time. It is so material, so itish. Homer's time is different. It's a series of 12 characters who are devoted to dancing. It's the hour when a woodman eats his lunch or the season when flies gather in sheds, or it is the pre-Olympian goddess of night, or it's Dawn who wears yellow clothes and has a liking for young men whom she snatches up and sleeps with. It's relatively easy to stop that sort of time. Even inside the meticulous clockwork of the Odyssey, with its 20-year divisions and its turning phases of the moon, with its chronometrical numbers of fruit trees and symbolic quantities of arrows and axes, even after all that careful counting, Athene manages to stop time in Book 23 so that Penelope and Odysseus can enjoy a long night together. Now Dawn, with her pink hands, would have risen on their weeping had not the grey-eyed goddess Athene thought differently. She held the long night back at the outward edge. She detained Dawn on her golden cushions by the ocean and would not let her harness her four-footed horses who bring the daylight to people. The Iliad, set in the ninth year of the Trojan War, has 218 similes. And each simile operates on the narrative like Athene, interrupting the flow with an image of the present moment. 
Notice the change of tense when, for example, Automedon is killed. So he fell like when oak falls, or white poplar, or tall pine, which carpenters in hills cut with axes to make ships. Or Thestor. Standing close, he speared him in the right jaw, breaking through his teeth, and pulled him over the rail as a man on a jutting rock hooks a vigorous fish from sea to land with line and shining bronze, so he hooked Thestor, gaping with his spear. It is part of every storyteller's art to look up out of the story and re-engage the audience with a contemporary reference. And these time shifts would surely have been marked by changes of gesture and tune. To hear the Iliad in performance, moving in and out of past and present, must have been a bit like Beckett's experience of a tonal surface eaten into by large black pauses. Except that in Homer, the pauses are not black. They are unspeakably bright. Like when the wind dies down, the stars stand out glittering around a shining moon. Each steep headland, every crag and cliff can be seen. The sky breaks open to its very depths, showing every star, and the shepherd's heart is glad. All the silver of that simile comes pouring out of the phrase, Uranofen da huperage aspetos aither. The sky breaks open to its very depths. Endless bright air spills from the heavens. Down from bright heaven bursts the boundless bright air. From heaven above, the boundless bright air is rent with light. Out of the sky slides a deeper, unspeakable sky. The night sky opens, and the real, secret sky bursts downwards. Aspetos, which means unsayable, describes ether, which is the immaterial faraway air. Huperage means undersplit, and it all happens uranothen with a downward, heaven-sent movement. The angles are exactly the same as in that passing informational line about the grapes in which the living hours lean earthwards from Dios, the sky god. Every phrase of Homer follows the same ecstatic line from nothingness into being and then back again. It is like the opening of a camera shutter, letting light fall suddenly onto the language. And that is, I think, what Beckett meant by speaking with moonlight in your voice. Thank you. <laughs>